And welcome to episode 142 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. Now, I'm your host, Charles Woods. On this episode of TBR Podcast, I talk with Dr. Jeannie Giamo, author of Unwell Writing Centers, Searching for Wellness in Neoliberal Educational Institutions and Beyond. You know, I I wrote this book because it was a book that I had wished I had when I started out as a writing center administrator at my first job. Um, we were doing all kinds of things with our with these new peer tutors. They were many of them were like straight up adults because we, I was at a community college. They were like above. 27 years old. That was the average age. And there were some really complex conversations taking place that just weren't being answered by the current research uh, and training manuals. And and a lot of that came around to um, interactions in learning spaces where the tutor, trainer, student, whatever, you know, felt unsafe. You'll hear more from Jeannie in a bit. But first, I want to share with you all something very cool that I did earlier this fall. As you know, I founded the DRPC, the Digital Rhetorical Privacy Collective, a group of scholars invested in interrogating privacy and surveillance in our culture and merging academic and public discourse on the topics. When I first wrote about the DRPC, I outlined a coalitional approach to researching and understanding privacy and surveillance in the field of rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication. This was in the dissertation. In spring 2023, it's taken me that long, right? I asked my university's WPA, Dr. Gavin Johnson, who's awesome, if I could develop a presentation about privacy, writing, and data collection for the university's writing program orientation. During my presentation, Surveillance and Respecting Student Privacy, we talked about catalysts for discussions of privacy and surveillance with students, things like artificial intelligence and changing state laws in Texas. Making this local connection seemed particularly critical. But perhaps most importantly, we talked about why the field of rhetoric and composition and technical communication is well positioned to take on issues of privacy and surveillance, including values like justice, equity, and difference, innovative methods and methodologies, and inherent interdisciplinarity. We also discussed this topic in relation to what rhetoric does, things like testing ideas, assisting advocacy, distributing power discovering facts, shaping knowledge, and building community. With this in mind then, rhetoric, composition, and technical communication should be at the forefront of discussions about digital privacy and surveillance. We need to understand privacy as tactical and establish what ethical surveillance looks like. So talking to the AM Commerce Writing Program is the first step towards a larger goal that comes from the dissertation project. Reach out to me and the DRPC if you'd like to chat more about incorporating these workshops into your own writing program, your graduate teaching assistant training, or a program even specific to your university. Note that for some of this content, I'm pulling from a DRPC blog post that I wrote about this topic. I encourage you to head over to drpcollective.com and check that out. Dr. Jeannie Giamo is Assistant Professor and Director of the Writing Center 
at Middlebury College in Vermont. The author of over two dozen peer-reviewed articles and chapters, their work has been published in Praxis, Journal of Writing Research, the Journal of Writing Analytics, Teaching English in the Two-Year College, Research in Online Literacy Education, Kairos, Across the Disciplines, the Journal of Multimodal Rhetorics, and several edited collections. They are also the editor of Wellness and Care in Writing Center work, an open access digital book with WLN, a Writing Center journal. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Jeannie Giamo. your name, your title, and your institution, and your role there. Who are you, and what do you do? Yeah, I am Dr. Jeannie Giamo, and I am an assistant professor in writing and rhetoric, as well as the Writing Center Director at Middlebury College in Middlebury, Vermont. How long have you been at Middlebury? Uh, uh, This is my fifth year, actually. It doesn't feel like it, because of a lot of reasons that end with emic, <laughs> um, but that's indeed the case. That's okay, Judy. I, I, I still think I live in Illinois and I've been in three states since then because of things that live in, end in the word emic. <laughs> so so what's, what, what's it like? What's Middlebury like? Okay, uh, I know a couple folks in Middlebury, right? But what's what's the university like? What's the student demographic? What are some of their values, motivations of the students and faculty, etc.? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Middlebury is a, what's called a, um, well, a slack, and that can mean a couple of things. It can mean a small liberal arts college, or it can mean a selective liberal arts college, depending on what your definition is. There's about 2,800 students, which is actually fairly large for us. We used to have like 2,500. Uh, 20 years ago, we had even fewer. Um, and what what is it like here? It's rural. It's way more rural than I've ever lived before. It's uh, not a city. <laughs> uh, we are the Shire County seat, whatever that means, in the township or borough, but probably not that of Addison. Oh, the county. <laughs> and uh, there are 10,000 people in the town. So it's very small, uh, to my mind. Obviously, it's not maybe as small as some other places around. Um, I once drove through the Dakotas, and it was like some of the towns were population five. So it's bigger than that, but way smaller than New York City, where I where I was um, born and raised. Um, the students here are I think there's a lot of like those sort of crunchy um, sort of mid kid stereo. I'm going to say, I'm going to call them stereotypes, right? That they're um, athletic and outdoorsy and kind of crunchy and they care about social change. And while all of that might be true, um, there's actually a, a a fairly large first gen population. That's a population that I work with very carefully because I'm first gen and that was part of what I was recruited here to do and also BIPOC and definitely in the last like 15-20 years liberal liberal arts schools have been trying to figure out how do we diversify 
even within our sort of elitist <laughs> uh, model, because a lot of them are quite elite. Um, I went to a, a liberal arts school on scholarship. I went to Clark University. It was a, a slightly different one, though, because it um, is both a research institution and a liberal arts school. And so you kind of got the best of both worlds. And it was in Worcester, which is more of a city than Middlebury, but less of a city than New York <laughs> um, in the cosmology of city to not city ratios. <laughs> Um, this is, you have no idea how much I'm talking about from city to non-city ratios today in some of my interviews. Go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, it's all good. Um, yeah, so I would say that there's actually a pretty large group of students at Middlebury who aren't just all about like skiing and other sort of more um, what might one might identify as like classed as wealthy um, endeavors. Um, and a lot of those students come from cities. Uh, in fact, like New York City, Chicago, LA, where we have posse connections. And and posse is a very important um, part of our uh, structure here too. So the posse scholars come in. Um, They're also, most of them are first gen. Many of them are BIPOC, although not necessarily so. Um, and they are, you know, activists and scholars and leaders in their communities. And then they come here and bring that kind of forward momentum in their work. Um, and a lot of the people in the writing center actually that I direct are um are first gen and a lot of posse scholars. Um so mm. so it's a complicated place, right? That's what well, I like to say. I, I wonder, let's unpack it a little bit. Um so you grew up in New York City. Where where did you grow up in New York City? I grew up in Staten Island, New York, but I was born okay. in Queens. And so Staten Island is often in the news for for reasons that are not great. Which I'm happy okay. to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> and you went to Clark University. What state is Clark University in? Massachusetts. Massachusetts, right? Okay, and it's in that city it has a name that I can't say. And so, <laughs> right? Where did you get your PhD? I got it in North, at Northeastern in Boston. Northeastern in Boston. Okay, so Jeannie, answer this question: How did you wind up at Middlebury? It's a great question. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> in some ways, right? Like I, I think I could tell you, um, I got my first job out of grad school. I was at a community college. I really loved the work, um, but the work didn't love me. And there's a lot of ways to kind of characterize that. And I'm happy to go into that later. Um, but we were a very under-resourced space. Um, I, it was in Massachusetts on the South coast. And that's really where I cut my teeth. And I think I talk a little bit about this in my book about around why wellness matters in these working spaces. Then I went to Ohio State, uh, which has a wonderful writing and rhetoric program um, and literacy. Uh, and I directed the writing center there. It was a gigantic school. There were 65,000 students. It, it had its own pharmacy. It was a city within a city. Um, and I continued to cut more teeth there, <laughs> which is where this book is about. And kind of, if you read a some of it, you probably can tell part of why I left. It, it's never the students, right? It's never the students. It's always the sort of institutional structures that do or do not enable us to do our work ethically. Um, and now I'm here. The name of the book that you're talking about is Unwell Writing Centers, Searching for Wellness in Neoliberal Educational Institutions and Beyond. Uh, incredible title. Uh, wellness is a framework. We'll get into that. 
I'm excited about that. But first, I want to talk a little bit about what are you teaching this semester? Uh, Middlebury, you said, is an interesting place. It's a slack. Uh, you mentioned that perhaps folks teach a lot of different classes. Maybe you wear different hats as an administrator and a teacher. Uh, so what are you teaching? And uh, what, are you, what are you and your students doing? Yeah, so this semester I'm teaching a new class on labor rhetorics. And I'm, it's so weird. Our writing and rhetoric program like flipped from comp to rhetoric this semester not like by hiring right like we just decided to all do different rhetoric classes <laughs> so there's a rhetoric of recent protests there's a rhetoric of death and i'm not teaching those um but i am teaching this course on labor and i i love it um it started off with like seven students in it and i was like nobody cares about labor you know we're in none of the the hottest striking uh, modes of ever. Unions have never been more popular in the last century. Um, and while unionization is numerically down, it is uh, union action and activity and positive sentiment is quite high, higher again than probably the last 70 years, uh, 60 years. And so I, uh, I was really bummed going in because it was like, there's only six or seven students in here. And a couple of them were like tutors of mine, you know, people who know me. Um, and now we have a full class. You know, again, it's not too large. Our classes are small when they're writing intensive. Um, it's 15, but a lot of students transferred into the class because they said, you know, I've been thinking about this on my own and I really want to think about it with a community. Um, and people are coming from all walks of life. we got first-gen students, students who are... Um, from other countries, students who are multilingual. We have students who are trying to come to grips with their class identities, their identities as workers. Um, we got a really large econ um, contingent. <laughs> econ is a, a popular major here. And a lot of them, uh, you know, they're coming from a very diff different disciplinary valence and vantage point when they come in. Um, and they're doing some interesting connection work, but also pivoting in terms of how they're thinking about questions of of labor, how, mm -hmm. how corporations treat their workers, how workers respond to low wages, stagflation, stagnation, uh, wage compression, outsourcing, and so on and so on and so on. What are some of the discussions that you all are having? Now, I know you just mentioned some of the questions that you're posing, but what are some of the discussions that you're having? Yeah, so I am basically taking this as a chance to do cultural studies through rhetoric, um, which, you know, they're kind of aligned, right? And I'm looking at, um, I'm looking at all kinds of uh, textual artifacts. So we are, we just finished reading Studs Terkel's Working, and then we listened to the musical. And the musical is like so saccharine and banal compared to the stories of the people that they cover. Um, we looked at the news and how news creates a certain kind of, um, with both a certain kind of rhetor <laughs> and then also speaking in a specific kind of rhetorical situation um, and that the audience is very specific. And I'm like, who is this for when you say GM is going on strike? We're not going to be able to buy cars, you know, and that's the New York Times. Like, that's not, you know, Wall Street Journal or Fox right. or whatever. Um, yeah. And then next week we're going to be covering um, the managed heart, which I talk about in my book um, around emotional labor. And we'll be talking about paid and unpaid labor and care work. Um, and these are just a few things. And there's not enough time. Um, there's just not enough time. <laughs> right. I, I appreciate the survey, if you will, what kind of what some of the things you all are talking about. Um, I know that you're not just teaching, and and, and but you do, like you said, uh, administer the writing, uh, writing center. Um, 
do you wear other administrative hats as well? What's a day like? Like, you know what I mean? Like what kind of admin, how are you balancing teaching and admin? What all are you adminning? I'm not sure what I'm asking. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. I think it speaks to just how much stuff we do in our field. Um, right. Like right. I, I am tired. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired too, just thinking about it. And I don't have a new child uh, or a child period. So I feel that. Um, so I, I run the writing center. It's complicated because it's embedded in courses, right? So it's like a fellows program. We have an online center. We have a drop-in center. We're in um, AFC, which is a uh, an affinity space for students of color and first-gen students and queer students. Um, so, so the writing center is large, and we have like sixty or so tutors every year, sometimes a little more, sometimes a, a, a couple fewer. <laughs> um, I do the placement advisement work for first-year writing. Um, so every student takes a survey that I designed. It's a psychometric survey um, around reading, writing, executive functioning, and research, literacy. And it's around self-efficacy questions. And I make recommendations into different kinds of courses. Um, I also do faculty development. I run workshops. I advise people one-on-one -on, -one on their pedagogy. Uh, <laughs> what else do I do? Eh, that. Oh, I managed an endowed prize for first-year writers and a digital writing uh, book connected to it. I feel like those are like the main tasks, but there's always, you know. Yeah. But this things. is a, like you said, like this is a, like just even a bulleted list of I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this. It explains the complexity of our job and how for some of us it feels like it does not end, right? Uh, <laughs> but also it explains a way into your research, right? Uh, and labor and what it, and I want to talk about that. Um, I want to talk about your framework, unwell. Um, why wellness? Why unwell? Uh, how did you land here? Um, and what does it mean? Yeah, great question. I, uh, you know, I actually only wanted the title to be unwell. I didn't want it to be unwell writing centers. Really? Yeah. So maybe if you're comfortable, some inside baseball or behind the scenes on how that went down. We don't talk about the publishing process enough. Yeah. So my editor and uh, some of the marketing people there were like, oh, it's really hard to search one word uh, titles, which I like don't actually agree with. But <laughs> they, they seem to really uh, kind of push that point. And so um, what I wanted it to say is unwell searching for wellness in the neoliberal writing center and beyond um because well for a lot of reasons <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yes and and to your point about the question of like why wellness or what the framework looks like i you know i i wrote this book because it was a book that i had wished i had when i started out as a writing center administrator at my first job um we were doing all kinds of things with our with these new peer tutors they were many of them were like straight up adults because we, i was at a community college they were like above 27 years old that was the average age and there were some really complex conversations taking place that just weren't being answered by the current research uh and training manuals and and a lot of that came around to um, interactions in learning spaces where the tutor, trainer, student, whatever, you know, felt unsafe. And uh, I think I talk a little bit about this in my book, but the thing that kind of struck me was this, uh, 
this tutor, I'm going to call her Tony, <laughs> you know, she was in my class and she had been, a, she was a math tutor. And she said to me, you know, we were going through the what ifs in the Longman guide to tutors. Like, what if the student cries and what if they're resistant to feedback? And I'm like, okay, like we can go through these. This is something I've seen. But then my, uh, but then Tony said, you know, what if, what if the student is under the influence? And I was like, under the influence of what? Like <laughs> completely <laughs> not aware that what she meant was a student who was drunk. Um, or a student who was having, was on um, narcotics, actually. And I don't think I talked too specifically about that. But, um, you know, this is something that she had already experienced uh, as a math tutor. And I I just kind of felt floored. Like, how do I respond to this? So that's really where the book started with this, like, one question that I couldn't answer. And I couldn't answer through the research in the field either. When it comes to thinking through wellness, right? Is it important to define it or is it more important to think about it in terms of what it's doing and when you are, what you're doing as well? Does that question make sense? I don't know if it does. It does. Um, I actually, you know, it's so funny, right? I was using rhetorical analysis to try to define wellness before I started writing this book, right? Like I was looking at all these emails, like boost your productivity and, uh, you know, 25 ways to be a better professor. (laughs) Yeah. No, in in the promotional, I don't mean to cut you off, but in the the promotional from, uh, from Utah state, it talks about some of the things you talk about, like top down, uh, down up. Right. And so that those, that's some of that jargon kind of is where that came from. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. No, it's, and so what, what ended up happening is it's kind of like with my dissertation, right? Like it all starts by seeing these uh, arguments being made actually in commercial spaces, right? So in my dissertation, it was about life narrative and, and, you know, Whole Foods was like, every meal has a story, tell yours. And I'm like, God, even the food needs a life narrative. Like it can't just be food. It has to have a memoir, right? And you were at Ohio State, right? No, that was at, so that was at Northeastern. And I was just like smitten by the ways in which commercialism drives uh, our sense of story. Right. And so with, with well-being, with wellness, like you could, where do you see that kind of stuff? You see it in advertisements for supplements. Uh, You see it in (laughs) emails from your institution, right? Um, Especially during the pandemic. You see it in what is actually a $4.4 trillion industry for tourism, beauty, sleep, mindfulness, uh, travel, health, and so on and so on. So well, what I'm doing in this book is really defining wellness against all that commercial stuff, which in fact also has infiltrated higher education through like wellness centers, right, uh, that are very much based on a sort of commodified understanding of well-being that's very individualistic. Um, in my opinion, neoliberal and, and also, um, kind of like cookie cutter, right? Like the positive psychology stuff that I was talking about in my book, that all comes from, you know, a researcher at Penn who then outsourced this model. There's a center there, outsourced the model. And almost all the big tens have this kind of training. It's called, um, the domains of wellness. And you can see every institution has its own wheel. It's the same wheel, but it's just in their colors, right? So, all of a sudden my tutors were like, I really, I really hate this stuff. And I'm like, huh. So I'm looking for like a quick fix to try to help my tutors become in some ways better workers. And then I realized, oh my God, I'm doing exactly the thing that, you know, 
I'm trying to work against, which is I'm giving into this neoliberal understanding of wellness, this this uh, commercialized wellness model. Okay, so first of all, before I can take the interview and throw it away from the rails, <laughs> all right, uh, because uh, you are unlocking some some memories that I'll get here in a minute. So how does this connect to like um, a value, a, a valuing of mental health and wellness by like, I'm going to sound like the white hair that you can see in the video from like the youngsters, right? from, from the, from younger folks, like the, 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 the college undergraduates now 18 through 20, like how does it coalesce? With yeah. I mean, I think when I talk about, and I do this in a lot of different spaces, right? Um, I do this in my classrooms. I do this in tutor training. I, God, I was doing this with my dental hygienist yesterday, right? I just like ask people, like, how are you doing? Like, what's going on in your lives, right? Um, you know, what kinds of challenges do you find in your work? And when people start talking, it's actually kind of hard to get them to stop because I feel like most jobs come with unique sets of challenges, a lot of which are emotionally valenced. And sometimes that make people truly uncomfortable. I don't feel like students today have problems identifying or locating that discomfort. I find that my students are very um, aware of both injustice, but also hierarchy differential. And when I say like, okay, so let's talk about like mutual aid. Let's talk about community care. Um, let's talk about mental health. There isn't this kind of attitude of, oh, well, um, for, <laughs> there's a lot of different attitudes, but the, maybe the more prevailing one is like, well, why here, right? Like. There's some research about contemplative practice that that was done uh, in like the WAC journal or something like this as a special issue. Maybe it was across the disciplines. I can't remember, but it was good, good special issue. But it had to like justify why feelings matter in a classroom, right? Like and why feelings matter in a writing classroom. And to me, like we don't need to be making that argument anymore, right? Especially after the pandemic. Like feelings are on, and bodies are on display in all kinds of classrooms, digital classrooms and person classrooms. And my students are are here for converse, conversing about that. There's not a there's not a like I'm a brain on a stick mentality. You know, there's very much a I'm a whole person. Can you identify me as such? And and that goes doubly so for the workers, um, the student workers, because, again, they're holding such a critical part of a of a university or college economic infrastructure and yet they are so often an afterthought, right? They're they're transient, they're not full-time, they're they turn over a lot, the wages aren't always that great. Um but but the responsibility is high. At least at Ohio State, my tutors were mandatory reporters, just like me, um, in terms of Title IX. And so all the responsibility, none of the care or the financial support. <laughs> Okay, now I'm going to throw the interview off the rails. Uh, so when you were talking just about wellness as like and neoliberalism and capital, uh, I was reminded that in the 90s, my grandmother had this like wellness radio show in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And like, I think the space, the place where that occurred is obviously like makes a lot of sense, uh, probably. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. Like, this is not this industry. Like, I don't think I've really thought, I think about it as a new, it's not new. There's been 
conference hotel room or a hotel conference center is full of people talking about wellness long before we were connected through the internet. Yeah. And, and actually a book that came out right before mine, which I didn't know about until a couple months ago. Well, like, I don't know, five months ago is Colleen Durkacz's Why Wellness Sells, which is just an excellent um, rhetorical analysis of people who are using all kinds of wellness regimens uh, in their lives. And this is also not new. People used to do this by mail order. She doesn't talk about that, but, but people did this by mail order, right? So the, uh, the, the supplements, colloidal silver, zinc, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's either for enhancement or longevity, right? Enhancement performance or life longevity. And there's many different iterations of this. You know, Ray Kurzweil was talking about telomeres and all that other stuff in the like 90s and trying to extend life through like, I don't know, DNA manipulation. I'm not exactly sure. Like I'm not a scientist, but that stuff is has been in the zeitgeist for a while. And now with... um you know, your venture capitalists, your hedge fund people, your tech people, you have, uh, like, for example, getting MRIs every few weeks and doing a colonoscopy every month and having a full body treatment, right? There's even health clinics, especially catering to the ultra wealthy around that kind of bodily scanning um, and bodily surveillance. And doctors, of course, aren't for it because like, there's a lot of potential for like catching something that might not actually be, um, negative, uh, over treatment, you know, um, over diagnosis, blah, blah, blah. But also to think of spending millions of dollars on your own sort of personal healthcare regimen that involves like full body scans weekly or monthly or whatever. I mean, and, and invasive bodily procedures too. Yeah. So like that stuff isn't new. Um, what I do think is new is the sort of linking together, uh, which Durkacz talks about. I don't talk about this in my book as much, but um, with people who kind of are wellness seekers who also distrust the government and mainstream healthcare. And so you kind of have a circle and it goes right back into that conservative conspiracy thinking stuff where um, unproven, unregulated stuff is the thing that is being kept from you, right? I'm holding the secret to life. And uh, only, you know, if only you pay this, you can have it. I mean, and this is like modeled in the arguments of lots of folks, like Infowars did this with stuff. I mean, Coil Silver, again, was one that was always up. <laughs> and and eventually it goes into like government distrust, vaccine hesitancy, and blah, blah, blah. And, and in fact, like the yoga community, actually, ironically, um, there's a pretty big strain of this. And so this is how people get radicalized from wellness and and what you would think of as something as like wholesome perhaps to, into uh, into extremism. Um, and again, it's all for commercial profit. <laughs> okay, so this connection you're making is like, well, this is a grift. <laughs> right. Yep, <laughs> like the sting. <laughs> right, yeah, excellent reference, Jeannie. <laughs> no, oh, there's probably some like, you know, new graduate students are like the sting. <laughs> That's actually, yeah, you're right. I'm really into weird like work musicals and weird work movies lately. Like, so also the pajama game might make its way into this. Um, <laughs> But but yeah, so yeah, it is a grift. And and not only is it a grift, but also um again with the internet, like you just have and social media, you just have such a different kind of experience of this um 
community, right? And the radicalization happens, I think, a lot faster, right? So like many decades ago, my uncle was sending away for like, I don't know, McGovern, you know, little uh, tract readers. And he also loves colloidal silver and zinc and bought currency in like metal currency. This is, uh, you know, like, like gold. <laughs> and, and, you know, he was, he's a working class guy. And I think, you know, that it happened slower then. And it, it was sort of like within this, like, again, conspiracy theory was a little bit less um, ugly in some regards, not always, but like, there's the um, people who want to believe in aliens and um, other life and uh, out-of-body experiences and whatever. But that eventually kind of gave way to this sort of rabid MAGAism nowadays, like in his life. And I, so I see this as a progression for a lot of people um, who kind of were hitting the tail end of that counterculture period in the seventies and so uh, sixties and seventies. And then like somewhere in the late, 90s perhaps 9-11 I mean then they became radicalized in one way now with the internet all bets are off right so I'm so I again I'm making connections here um that are not exactly being made in that book why wellness sells the the stuff about the supplements and things like yeah that. no exactly I'm, I'm, that's why I'm just sitting here thinking I'm like I want to talk to Jeannie about all this stuff I don't even <laughs> like I'm just sitting here like actually Jeannie my theory on this is directly tied to communication dude <laughs> and like and the progress there like i've spent some hours on this like and the word that's making me jump back into this conversation we're going to get to the book i promise is <laughs> progress right like this like keep it buy this supplement now now buy this supplement like it's a progression to keep progressing to stay alive forever i don't know there's so much here well and and you know again with my dissertation which was on neuroscience and memory and memoir i mean people were talking about distributed bodies distributed consciousness putting putting your your memories into a uh, i don't know some sort of program or the cloud and then the body would be um frozen and i think some russian oligarchs had a had a like program like this that they were running for it was called like the 2036 i don't remember what it was called but it was something like that we got to keep talking about this because <laughs> at the the nexus of this conversation is perhaps like you're talking about we feed the information into the system. But what before the system was like a digital technology or a mobile technology, it was a person. I'm off the rails here, but like we were doing that with like telephone psychics <laughs> that we would yes. feed them. Go ahead, please. No, and the idea of the grift, right? Okay, so I think if we really want to bring it all back together, like we're all looking for wellness, right? We're searching. That's my motif. That's my through line in my book, which, um, you know. And that's how you organize the book too, right? Yeah, so I was, you know, I'm in it. I'm searching around. I'm kind of finding inklings and then I'm thinking about the future, right? So, So this isn't like to dunk on writing centers, but- a lot of the time, the scholarship is about optimizing labor, right? Mindfulness to help a student not procrastinate. Breathing to help a tutor be a better tutor. Um, a professional tutor engaging in a series of mindfulness activities over the semester who then loves to learn their, learns to love their job more, right? A lot of that stuff was being operationalized in a way I was deeply uncomfortable with. And that's why I started pushing back against that. And a definition, again, of wellness that is anti-commercial. Like I want to recognize that we all want better lives. We want better working lives, better um, 
relationships, better connections to the world. Perhaps we want to live longer. Perhaps we wish climate change wasn't happening, for example. Like, you know, I think that there's a lot of self-directed desire and then there's a lot of communal need for a better future. Um, and that's really where I try to locate this book. So I don't think that making us all cyborgs maybe is going to make us immortal and better. You know, others might, but that's not my, it's not my bag, right? So a lot of what I'm doing in this book, at least, is trying to think about wellness, not only as an individual endeavor, um, which involves things like mindfulness and um, certain kinds of uh, Hindu and Buddhist tenets like ahimsa, which is not doing harm or um, loving kindness or um, anti-materialism. But also I'm trying to think about where can we look to each other to support and create community and what, and where can we hold the institution accountable when wellness is definitely not ha happening from a top-down direction. To kind of get to thank you for bringing us <laughs> back together. No we see who the superior <laughs> educator here is. No, it's all good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit more about how your book uh, and arguments fit into what you mentioned earlier ongoing conversations about labor, uh, the amplification of labor unions, right? Well, let's see, we have. Um, the SAG-AFTRA union strike just occurred, and I believe some headway was made this week or late last mm -hmm. week, uh, deal struck, writers. which included, yeah, with the writers, which included AI protections for yes. actors, which I thought was really cool uh, for my own research interests. Um, we also have other things going on, though, as well uh, in California with educational uh, uh, unionizing uh, and Illinois at my alma mater, Illinois State University. Their faculty nice. were just uh, just uh, after years uh, have gotten their union. And then we have our president, Biden, uh, was at a UAW mm -hmm. uh, event. I don't know if it was the first president. It, <laughs> but I would, it, it wasn't. I would imagine it was. So how does this book and your arguments kind of fit into this these ongoing conversations about labor and union? Yeah, so. I mean, and just to add to that, besides GM, um, also Rutgers went on strike and had a, a co coalition union. Yeah, I right? forgot about Rutgers. Yeah, which was huge. Northeastern, which had tried to unionize its graduate students 10 years ago when I was there, and I, I helped a little bit with the campaign. I was not the main person by any means, but um, they're just starting to have their union recognized after a decade of union busting by the institution. Um so there's there's a and of course Kaiser is now all the doctors are walking off and the CVS pharmacists and and so on and so on and so on right like it's everywhere and I and it's actually in some industries that lately haven't had as much union activity uh, and people are seeing a kind of shift even into that technical you know some different tech companies are trying to unionize too and have. Um, and I think that when I started writing this book, what I realized is every time you talk about wellness, you're talking about commercialism. And when you are putting it into an, an institutional workplace or any kind of workplace, you're talking about the workplace. You're talking about money. You cannot separate labor from wellness, right? If we are unwell people, we can't do our jobs. And that's both, you know, there's a lot of ways in which one can be unwell. Um, a lot of what I'm trying to talk about is how some of the factors that make us unwell are way out of our control. And a lot of them, again, are from the state. They're from a political um, system. They're from an institutional structure. And so 
And so that's definitely where I see I see labor as not being able to be disentangled from wellness, because so often the wellness uh, game, the grift is it's all about making you a better you, but oftentimes in the pursuit of working. And so what happens if we kind of throw that, um, you know, rhetorical strategy on its head of like, I'm going to tell you this thing to make you a better worker and a better person and whatever, um, and maybe live longer and stuff like that. Like there, you know, the wellness stuff goes deep. So it could be making all kinds of promises to us, um, these industries. But if we take that and turn it on its head, how do we create an ethical workplace that is labor and wellness forward, right? So worker and wellness forward, instead of just me saying, okay, guys, you're going to go to these wellness programs through the center at my institution, and you're going to become better workers, and you're going to be happy, and it's mandatory fun participation. <laughs> um, how can I couple wellness interventions with worker interventions, right? Um, and that's where some of my discussion around like, flexing time, sick time, uh, you know, different kinds of worker policies in the space um, came from. I've got a couple of few more questions. And this is usually a question I would last ask last, but I'm going to ask it now. What are the next directions that you're going with this research? Like, what are the next steps yeah. So, so, okay. So this, I'm glad you're asking it now because pretty much this is um, front on my mind because the next project I'm doing is actually looking at, um, I'm not looking at, I'm interviewing <laughs> uh, dozens of workers in higher education. Uh, I tried to get a bunch of people in different disciplines, but Hey, go figure. It was mostly retcon people who <laughs> uh, showed up. Thank you guys. Um, and I am talking about life events and how different kinds of life events impact one's ability to do academic work, right? So um, caretaking duties, disability, new diagnoses, chronic illness, things that are that are pretty significant punctuated experiences in one's life. Um, and I'm wondering both what the institutions are doing to address these things, as well as what our individuals doing, as well as what are the people in you know chairs of departments and whatever, whatever. And what I'm finding is is pretty dismal, right? Like it's pretty dismal at the institutional level. There's almost no um, discussion of aging beyond like here's your retirement fund, good luck. Uh, there's nothing really. I mean, even the way that you access accommodations isn't clear. It's not part of orientations for faculty or workers. Um, a lot of times it's a contentious experience to get accommodations. Um, and you're typically just one person away from the difference between your job basically being a gigantic, um, a strain and source of stress and, and being functional. And so if one chair can make a decision to allow you to do remote work so you could take care of your ailing partner, or if one chair decides to um, buy you that desk, give you the funds for that ergonomic desk, or if uh, one colleague helps drive you to an appoint doctor appointments, right? You are so much more likely to have more positive feeling towards your job, uh, as well as engagement with your job, and less disaffectation from the institution. And yet, institutions by and large almost do nothing to support or protect or even educate their workers. And yet we're a graying profession. And as a lot of people in disability studies talk about, we're all permanently abled, impermanently abled. Um, <laughs> one day we might experience a disabling event. Um, many of us have, and many of us 
have experienced many of those events actually. And so, so what I'm learning is that the workplace, even for people who are tenured, even for people who are long-term in their jobs are not, it's, it's like, we're all hanging on by a thread. Now, of course, the people I'm interviewing are the ones who self-selected in and, and they have a story to tell. There's a lot of uh, chirotic uh, energy behind this. Uh, it's really of the moment. A lot of people are working things out with me, which is totally different than the kind of work I normally do. I do survey work. I, I'm very removed from people and my data, which is kind of funny because then I write about things that seem so personal. And I, yeah, so. Um, <laughs> I love that. Uh, critical reflection as a researcher. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, okay, a couple more questions. Uh, you included in your introduction to your book two professional biographies. Why two? What does this mean? Yeah, so I did that because I feel like there's this world out there where you have to be perfect, right? Academia is a very perfection-demanding industry, Um and as a, as a first-gen woman, I am doubly aware of the fact that I need to be as close to perfect as possible. Um, and so I gave that CV version of my, um, of my, my, my bio, and I gave it kind of to you too at the beginning of this. And then I talked about the job not loving me. And that is something that I think is really worth talking about, which is what happens when you try to do all the right things, but a job just won't love you back, right? And of course, work should never be the thing that loves you back. Like we should be making human connections with people, in my opinion, right? Like I, I don't think work should be the only source of enjoyment we have in our lives. Um, at the same time, I just know that when we give these, these bios, that it's really hard to to be honest about the struggles of this work. And it's really easy to gloss over the reasons why we're constantly searching, right? So I wasn't just searching in my, in my way to find a better manner in which to work with my tutors and to support them through emotionally complex, challenging, and sometimes downright dangerous and emergency laden situations um, like, like active aggressor, situation or bomb threat or, uh, you know, major weather events, et cetera, uh, or a pandemic. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I also was searching for meaning in my own career and I was searching for safety and non-precarity. And I think this is where I gave, thought giving to biographies. I mean, some people, especially my new project are talking about having to bifurcate their identities in order to survive their days, like, and really just be kind of part of themselves or even a different person to function. And to me, this is that that challenge of the work that we do in, in helping professions of which teaching is one um, and of which many of us are kind of even forced into as WPAs and whether or not we want to care or not. Um, and this is where I think some of the challenges of managing those um, those ch well, challenge is the bio happen, right? The the complex experiences. And I feel like there's not a lot of time space for that in in our work. So much of what you're talking about is resonating with me, Jeannie, from, hey, we need to talk about this orientation, whether we don't talk about this orientation, uh, to um, 
you know, I've had some, I'm just to be honest, I've had, I've had a rough week of hitting roadblocks with building coalitions and doing justice based work in Texas. And so like that shit is pissing me off. <laughs> right. And so yeah. like a lot this week, um, a lot of what you're talking about is really resonating with me. Um, last couple of questions. So this is kind of like a, Hey, I have some awesome scholar here and I want to think about the intersections of their work with my own work and their arguments of their book. So with this idea, with the framework of wellness and an approaching labor in the writing center, how could we think about those two things and triangulate with concerns for digital privacy? Yeah. Okay. So nothing I did really was digital. Um, and in fact, I am so fascinated, again, rhetorically speaking, by the surveillance state of like HR and all these healthcare programs. And they're like, use a pedometer or let's take your blood and then give you money off on your medical uh, premiums. I mean, it's it's insidious. And I feel like many of us struggle again within this. It's not a state apparatus exactly. It's an institutional apparatus. But um I try to keep explaining, and I put this in my book too, you know, corporations realized that their workers were getting sicker and more disengaged with work, and they were leaving in larger numbers in the 70s, right? Which really like kind of coalesced around um, outsourcing as well. So the jobs kind of got crappier. And uh, although, you know, not, and, and that's like a simplification, but, and so these wellness programs that are created by HR are a direct result of trying to get, again, better workers, have to get them to stay in place, do their job, not call out sick, not cost the uh, company a lot of medical bill in, in medical bills. Um, and there's been research done in occupational studies and other fields that these things just don't work, right? Like people start them, they don't finish them. They're very geared toward, uh, white middle-class workers, typically women, uh, men, especially men of color, are completely left out of participation typically for many different reasons that are both um, cultural, political, <laughs> um, sometimes economic, or even ac around access, right? Because of who's holding different work in an institution um, and who has time to do these kinds of like, go to a chair massage at our health fair, you know, like for five minutes and get points. And then that, again, goes to a pedometer. Um, I don't know why I'm so focused on the pedometer. It's just like, that's like one of the only sort of silly things you get. And it makes you trackable, right? And yeah, the apps yeah. make you trackable. And right. your fun your behaviors make you trackable. And while we right now have ACCA, which is supposed to not allow for discrimination based on your prior health um, conditions, it might not always be there. And so I, and that's another thing that I'm hearing in my new research, which is a deep and abiding fear of getting accommodations because somehow that's going to get back to their employers and they're going to be penalized for it. And so surveillance is something that occurs not just online, but also within and in digital realms, but also within these sort of personal, um, you know, interpersonal office spaces. Uh, which is why everything that I do with my tutors and everything I did with my tutors at my previous institution was not mandatory. It was all optional. It's not perfect, but it's a way to try to get away from that, right? I appreciate you underscoring the systemic nature of all of this and all of your answers, Jeannie. Um, I really appreciated talking with you today. Um, I hope you have a good afternoon. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. 
all. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with with Dr. Jeannie Giamo. I mean, I could talk for days to Jeannie. I hope we can find something to collaborate on or maybe create a podcast scholar in rhetoric. Residence. <laughs> podcast scholar in rhetoric works too at Middlebury. I drought Vermont. I mean, truly, Jeannie, a pleasure to talk to you. I hope we are in touch again soon. If you have a new project, a publication, a book, or even a new class you're teaching, I want to talk to you. Is there an issue or topic you want us to cover on the podcast? Reach out at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com and pitch an episode. All right. I'll be back next week with another new episode of TBR Podcast. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media. Exalt Digital Media, not for profit. The Big Rhetorical Podcast was recorded on the land of many native nations, past and present. These original homelands are territories of indigenous peoples who are largely dispossessed and removed. We specifically acknowledge the traditional stewardship of this land by the Wichita, Kickapoo, and Tawakoni peoples. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Lane, Stefa Helix, and Speck. Mm-hmm.